I'll be caught in the reading that part about don't deviate to the left or to the right. I'm not going to ask how many of you sang the wrong chorus a few minutes ago. You know, a little bit of dyslexia going on there on my part. Always have to remember. Yeah. So uh, it's good to start a sermon with a profound personal observation. So that's what that was. Well, you may be wondering, what in the world are we doing with a big Hebrew scroll up here up front? Of course, I usually wonder, what are we doing not having a big Hebrew scroll up front? But we have reached the end of the worldwide Jewish High Holy Days. They actually ended, in terms of the world Jewish community, last night. They came at the end for Israel of the dry season that has baked the land starting in February when not a drop of rain falls between February and getting towards the end of October. Jerusalem has one, count them, one and only one freshwater spring. And it is miserably inconvenient to get to and monopolized by the elites. So everybody else gets their water from cisterns, plastered holes dug in the ground, And the water washes into the cisterns from the streets and alleys and through the drains and down into the cisterns, along with everything else that is in the streets and the alleyways and the drains. And all that solid matter goes down into the cistern and, fortunately, settles to the bottom. This is why you want a deep cistern, because this is an animal economy, don't forget. And so it's all right as long as you're drinking off the top of that cistern. But by the time you get around September, the dry season has really, really cinched up tight. And the level of the cistern is getting down pretty close to some place there you don't want to be drinking that water. There's a reason why Jewish law doesn't allow cistern water for purification. And it's not profound. So as the water is getting a little more lively, shall we say, (laughs) down there, and developing a bit of color about it, this is the point at which you begin to ask just how thirsty you really are. This is why it's a huge crime in the Old Testament to steal water from somebody else's cistern. This is when your wife said, I told you you should have dug that cistern deeper. Uh, So anyway, this is the, the moment then, where in September you celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the new year, and then move directly into the most depressing day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, which Leviticus declares it is a day to afflict your soul. Only one day a year, but so you really got to do it good. And so they remember all of our sins, all of our unworthiness, and we realize I merit the gift and grace of God about as much as I deserve to have the skies burst forth with this rain. So the dryness of the fields, the parchedness of your throat, and the emptiness of your soul sort of all come together in this mind, body, spirit kind of meld, and it's miserable. Then it's camp out time. The Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. And though it seems fun, and I'm sure it is, I think it is. Remember what it commemorates. For 40 years, God was killing a generation of Hebrews in the wilderness by keeping them in the desert. 
Imagine sitting at the table, looking up at mom and dad, and thinking, I'm not in the promised land because of what you guys did. I mean, it, would, it was a hard time. But also during that period, they received the law of God from Mount Sinai. And that is what they truly celebrate during the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, is the giving of the law from Mount Sinai. Again, about the time they're hoping water will come down from the sky, they're remembering that the law of God, the water of life, actually came down from Mount Sinai. Then at the end of Sukkot, there is an eighth day. It's called Shemini Atzeret, which means the eighth day. Um, (laughs) It means the eighth gathering. And they all gather together and pray for rain. This is the day, by the way, where it says when Jesus, on the last great day of the feast, stands up and says, anybody thirsty? And I mean, somebody's there is going, no, Jesus, this is not the time. Uh, Come to me, and I will give you not water that looks like it's alive. I will give you actual living water, flowing and pure and clean. So they prayed for rain, and on this last great day of the feast, there was one other thing that began to be done in Jewish tradition. It's called Simchat Torah. Who in Hebrew here remembers what that means? I'm not going to ask. It means the joy of the law, the celebration of the law. They reached the end of the synagogue lectionary, the last chapter of Deuteronomy, wrap back around and read Genesis 1. And it's the only time of the year that the scroll is brought out at night. It's also the only time of the year that the scroll gets to go out. They take the scrolls into the streets and they dance. Sidelocks bobbing, funny big hats up and down, long coats flopping around, celebrating. And if you're in Jerusalem, it's going on at the Western Wall. It's crazy. You'd be down there just being a tourist, you know, trying to get a picture. And some rabbi hands you the scroll and says, do the Bible boogie boy. (laughs) And suddenly you're dancing with a scroll. And you're saying, I'm a holiness kid. I don't dance. <laughs> so you dance with a scroll. You don't say, you just handed that scroll to a Gentile. But, uh, but at any rate, it's, it's crazy and it's exciting and it's fun to watch these guys just, just dance with that scroll of the law and celebrate that knowing God's will is more important than a glass of water. And then the rains come. So it's customary on Simchat Torah to also read Joshua 1, which we just read. And we will not be dancing with our scroll because it's very precious, and there are state, federal, and local regulations barring me from dancing anywhere in public. (laughs) But among Jews, Simchat Torah is also a day to defy oppression and persecution. And Jews in the old Soviet Union would take their scrolls into the streets in front of their places of worship and dance in defiance of the tyranny under which they had to live. Persecution, pogroms, genocide, all defied by a joyful dance with a scroll. I want you to remember the image of dancing with the scrolls for a moment. Because let's look at our text in Joshua 1. 
This is a bad moment for Joshua in a lot of ways. He faces some real challenges here, and I think we tend to overestimate just how well things are going at this point. He is facing some formidable enemies. Of course, he's facing Canaan. Now, Canaan was the name of the Egyptian province uh, that was where the promised land was located. And Canaan always signifies the Egyptian administration of that region. All the kings of the cities that Joshua was supposed to go after had backing them up the full military might of Egypt. They had troops, chariots, state-of-the-art military technology and tactics. And God says to Joshua, yeah, these are the people you're going after. It's like telling some little obscure German-speaking enclave in Poland, yeah, you're going to bring down NATO. Okay. Then it says the Hittites. Well, the Hittites are the other great world empire, like the Russian Federation or the Warsaw Pact or something, on the other side of our little German-speaking enclave in Poland. And he said, oh yeah, while we're at it, we'll take out the Warsaw Pact too. And so Joshua's thinking, this is really getting crazy. Oh, and then there's also the Amorites. Well, they're a a state up in southern Lebanon, and they're kind of shifty and shady. They don't have a capital city. They're hard to pin down. They play both of the empires against each other. They intimidate, threaten, blackmail all the various cities into cooperating with. They're the mafia. Okay, so God is telling this little guy in the German enclave of Poland, hey, look, we're going to go after NATO and the Warsaw Pact and also take out the mafia. And don't worry, I've got this. And Joshua said, you know, and God says, you know what the joke is, is that years from now, people will think you're the bad guy in all this. Look at all the violence in the Old Testament. And Joshua's thinking, look at all the violence that's about to land right on our heads. When these people grind us up and spit us out and pave their roads with us. That's what Joshua's looking at. Formidable enemies. And the voices in his head are saying, you are toast. Well, then he's got problems with his own people. Like before they even got there, already there was a whole group that said, you know what, we don't need to really cross the Jordan, do we? I mean, why go over there and pick this big fight? We can run cattle over here on the east and be just fine. And Moses spit nails at those guys and exacted from them an oath that they would go across the Jordan and fight for their brothers, uh, the rest of Israel. But now Moses is dead. In the ancient world, anytime a promise is made to somebody and that person dies, a lot of times the promise ends up being renegotiated. So Joshua's thinking, what are these clowns going to do? Are they going to want to stay over here? Are they going to stick with their promise? What's going to happen? And so the voices in his head are saying, they won't follow you. They're going to abandon you and you're going to be destroyed and they're going to be over there running cattle on the east and be fine. And also Joshua's got to do all this standing in the shadow of a great leader, Moses. Any of you ever followed a legendary, amazing, wonderful leader? And every time people talk to you about that leader, it's not to stress how great you are. And when these people say to Joshua at the end of this chapter, the Lord be with you as he was with Moses, they're not saying, oh, may the Lord be with you. They're saying, and there's a little Hebrew particle that makes it clear, they're saying the Lord had be with you the way he was with Moses or guess what we're out of here and so the voices in his head are saying son 
you're no Moses. But what does the voice of God say? The voice of God three times in this chapter says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and resolute. Where is that going to come from? Where is he going to hear something that will cancel out the very real problems out here and all those voices in his head telling him, you're going to fail, you're in trouble, you're facing the impossible, this is not going to happen. Where's that going to come from? Well, all these calls to courage that Joshua hears are all centered on the book of the law. The disciplines of scripture are essential to Joshua's career and work as Israel's new leader. And so God calls him not just to be obedient, but in verse 8, a very specific discipline, very specific practice is mentioned. It says, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night to be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you shall make your way prosperous. Then you shall have good success. God calls Joshua to do two things. Meditate on the scriptures, on the book of the law, and act on the scriptures, the book of the law. And I'm really interested in that term meditation this morning. Because this involves being really steeped in the content of the book of the law. Uh, I remember... I'm looking, I don't see John Oswald here. I think he might be the only person here that would remember this. Or maybe Dr. Arnold. We had a lecturer on campus. I'm not going to name his name. But uh, he was lecturing on getting in touch with the supernatural and the divine and all this kind of stuff. And he was talking about meditation. And at one point he actually described taking his bathtub at home and filling it full of water heated exactly to body temperature and getting in there and having somebody lay a door over that tub and turning all the lights out. And he's like a sensory deprivation tank. He said, when I was in there, I began to realize the existence of other entities, other worlds. He thought this was God. You know, you don't have to get in a bathtub with a door over it to meet God. I'm just telling you that in case you don't know. But you will meet some other stuff. And if you probe deeper and deeper into yourself, I promise you, you're not going to find God. You'll drill down into the smelly swamps of your unclean subconscious, down into the bottom of that cistern, where the deeper you go, the dirtier it gets. No. That's not what meditate means here. In fact, meditate is probably the wrong translation for this word. You knew it was coming. The Hebrew word, (laughs) suddenly Cook and Arnold are going into a panic. Oh no, stone's going off on a Hebrew word. This word only appears 33 times. It's not like the Bible's a treatise on this subject. But it always has two elements. And it's strange because these two elements are always present whenever it's used. One of them is that it's kind of verbal. Kind of a mumbling, moaning, mumbling, muttering sort of sound. Speaking under one's breath. It can be moaning in pain. It can be groaning, sighing, talking to oneself, muttering hostile threats. Uh, Cartoon some of us that I grew up loving was Popeye. And the fun thing about Popeye wasn't what happened. It was that this character was always mumbling. 
And if you listened to what he mumbled, there was a whole other layer at which you could enjoy the cartoon. And it was not always appropriate to children. Um, so, and I wondered, why does my dad sit here and enjoy Popeye with me? I mean, this is a stupid kid's cartoon. And then I found out later why. And so I did not allow my children to watch Popeye. Also included is usually the element of repetition, listing, recitation, um, maybe just going over a bunch of grievances again and again and again, uh, or something like that. So we've got here a kind of mumbling, talking that's repetitive. And when you find this word in expressions of piety, it is the constant, repetitive mumblings and musings over God's great historical acts of redemption as they are declared in the pages of Scripture. So Psalm 1, which is the keynote statement for the book of Psalms, contrasts the wicked person with the happy person. I love that contrast. Not wicked and righteous, wicked and happy person. The happy person, we're told, meditates in the law of Yahweh day and night. Now, if you look at the, um, all the places where we find this expression of piety in the Old Testament, there's a common theme, and I just want to illustrate it from one place, and that's Psalm 77. And in Psalm 77, the psalmist, like he often is in the Psalms, is in a bad way. He is discouraged, depressed, uh, facing problems that are overwhelming him, and guess what? Prayer isn't working. He says, I'm crying out to God. I'm crying out to God, 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 God. Anybody there, 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 there? Hmm. And he says, the more I prayed, the worse it got. He says, my soul refused to be comforted. And then he said, when I remember God, I am disturbed. And he looks all around. He looks at every possible resource he can find. And we find out that there is no help at all. And he ends by saying, what if God has changed? So he's in trouble. And then in verses 11 and 12, he says, having seen the bankruptcy of help from the past, from his own mind, from every other source, he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. And from that point, the mood changes dramatically. And he begins an imaginative, poetic retelling of the crossing of the sea. And it's quite imaginative. He takes quite a few uh, midrashic sort of liberties with the text. But it's clear he's immersed in that story. And his mind is in that story. And as he rehearses that story, instead of saying I, 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 he's now saying you, 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 you. And he's grounded in the sacred narrative of scripture, reciting it, letting it stimulate his imagination And the psalm doesn't even end. It just stops with this guy, zoom, coming right off the runway, back in full flight. That is what meditation is about. It is not about emptying our mind or assuming some odd posture or sensory deprivation or getting in a bathtub or something, although bathtubs are not a bad idea. Um, It involves being steeped, saturated, marinated in the whole of scripture, the whole narrative. And just how broad is our reading and knowledge of God's word? And I have to tell you something. 
This is something your exegesis classes won't do for you. That is drilling down into a a shorter passage for good reason, for good results. But to really get yourself enmeshed in Scripture, marinated in it, you've got to read it from Genesis to Revelation over and over and over and over. You've got to do something counterintuitive for seminarians. Put your pen down and just read. And I always have been a a champion of reading through the Bible in a year. Use a different translation every year. Buy a cheap paperback Bible. And maybe if you're going to use a pencil, just use it to flag stuff you want to look at later. But this is not about drilling down. This is about running it through your mental system over and over from Genesis to Revelation. Creation, fall, call, Israel, exile, return, Jesus crucifixion, book of Acts, coming again, creation. And as this moves through your system, about the 10th year that you're doing this, you're going to realize that it's the most pervasively subversive thing you've ever done in your life. All those voices in your head are having to shut up now because there's another voice in your head. It's the voice of scripture. You say, what an idiot I am. And the scripture doesn't say, oh no, you're actually quite smart. The scripture says, we're all unwise, aren't we? But God is good, isn't he? And you're his problem. And so let's roll with that. <laughs> and so, you know, it's not always what you expect. There'll be stories that you, that you know are coming, that you don't understand, that you don't like. You say, here it comes, here it comes, there it is, oh no. And you'll see stories where characters do the same stupid thing every time because it's the same book you're reading every time. (laughs) Maybe there'll be a time when Zedekiah won't rebel against the Babylonians. No, Zedekiah's stupid. He's going to do it every single time. (laughs) But when you have enculturated yourself in the biblical narrative, then... It does not depart from your mouth. You meditate in it day and night. It's the earworm that's always playing in the back of your mind, reading. And this is always going to involve also memorization. It's probably the most under-celebrated spiritual discipline. But you know, everybody memorizes what's important. You memorize the statistics of your favorite sports team. Um, Probably we've memorized uh, some of the, the... television series that we binge watch we probably know more about them than we do about scripture musicians memorize long scores there's some things musically maybe julie will back me up on this that you're never going to experience until you've memorized a demanding and complex piece of music and can play it off by heart memory is what makes us aware of who we are where we've been and what we're becoming and your memory needs to be marinated in the narrative of scripture and so rigorous careful thinking and reflection on scripture until it gets into our memory begins to rewrite the inner script of our lives and change all those voices in our head and so now we are able to act in a very unusual way and our text here has something that if you're not reading in Hebrew really closely, you'll miss it. In fact, there are translations that miss it. The text doesn't say to meditate on the law of God that you may do all that is written in it. 
It says that you may do like all that is written in it. Do you hear the difference? Doing all that's written in it means, here's a list. What is it? 600 and something commands. Do them all. Challenging. But it's still a finite number. I mean, theoretically, one could do all those things. And then when I'm done, I'm done. But that's not really going to get us where God wants us to be. But no, the text says, do like all that is written. That is, the law is not a prescription. It is a criterion. Whatever you do in your life, it needs to stack up against this. It needs to be like this. It needs to resonate with this. It needs to be somebody can say, what you're doing, I can see right now, you've been reading this book. When I, I'm, I'm a sort of aspiring jazz guitar player. Um, so far, all the books in my office think I'm great, but nobody else has caught on. Um, but people that have heard me play who know music can name the people that I've listened to. And it's not because I tried to imitate them. It's that listening to these people has started coming out in my fingers from my instrument. And that's what living according to all that is written is really about. It means to be so saturated in scripture that we understand how the biblical teaching thinks and operates and acts. We can predict what a biblical person would or would not do. And that's what's involved here, acting according to all that is written. And so I want to ask us today, all of us, Bible scholars, seminarians, everybody, about our engagement with Scripture. You can do a lifetime of research and never really have marinated yourself in the Bible. You can do, you can preach hundreds of sermons, good ones, and still not be so enmeshed in the biblical narrative that you do like all that is written in it. If we lack courage, feel drained, unable to meet the challenge, running out of gas, it might be that we've cut out the living flow of the living water of God's word in our lives. Remember that dancing with the scroll? Every time I think about that, I think of a song I heard about 40 years ago. You have to pull the story of the song from between the lines, but it looks like it's a high school reunion and there's a rock band playing and lots of young folks are, are dancing, you know, sort of in that type of dancing where you don't exactly know where the other person is. And present there is an old man, a widower. And he looks across the room and he sees an old woman who's his childhood sweetheart and he hasn't seen her for decades. And they end up standing together. She whispers something in his ear and he says, yeah. And they start to leave, but then they stop. And they walk out into that crazy chaotic dance floor with all the rock and roll booming. And he takes her in his arms and slowly they just begin to dance. Oblivious to everything that's around them. And I love the chorus of this old song. It says, they started to dance like old lovers who know and cherish each other's grace. And his arms never pushed her nor pulled her. And her eyes 
never left his face. His arms never pushed her nor pulled her. Her eyes never left his face. I want that to be me in my relationship to God. Surrounded by all the racket and writhing and outrage of our culture, all the ranting and corruption, people desperately dancing to music they hate with people they don't even know. With my Lord to dance like old lovers, knowing and cherishing each other's grace. His arms never push me nor pull me. My eyes never leave his face. Maybe you've never really dedicated yourself to letting Scripture rewrite all those scripts in your life. In the old days, the only way to learn to dance was a roll of paper. You rolled it out on the floor, and it had the footprints on it. And you, and you did this. And you finally got it, you know. That's how you get to where that old man and woman were in that dance floor. You start out awkward. But then there's a moment where suddenly it's you. Meditating and studying scripture starts out awkward. It's a discipline. But in time, you can roll up that piece of paper, put your eyes on the face of your heavenly dance partner, and move out onto that crazy dance floor with nothing on your mind but the one you love. Maybe right now in the crowded and uncomfortable dance floor of our world, God is whispering into your ear, into my ear, could I have this dance? Let's pray.